I didn't heal until I stopped pretending I wasn't hurt. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a recovering alcoholic. I am a recovering adult child. I am a recovering CPA. I once peed my pants at a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse completely sober. I also once went to a concert with my Lyft driver completely sober. I realize that I have not shared this story with y'all. And uh, it's, it's one of my faves, but you can just fast forward a few minutes if you don't want to listen to it. So I love Yacht Rock, and I have no shame about it. If you're wondering what Yacht Rock is, I just did a little, little Goog search on what it is, and it's, um, this is how it's described. Yacht Rock is music primarily created between 1976 to 84 that can be characterized as smooth and melodic and typically combines elements of jazz, rhythm and blues, and rock. So we're talking like Boz Skaggs, we're talking Tom Petty, we're talking the Eagles, we're talking Hall & Oates, Doobie Brothers, all that shit. So I love Yacht Rock, and there is a wonderful Yacht Rock cover band that plays out here in California. They're called Mustache Harbor. I'm like their biggest fucking fan. So this is obviously pre-pandemic. They typically play in San Francisco every few months. They usually play on a Friday and Saturday night. So I go on a Friday night and I go with one of my friends. Now, he was not into the music as much as I was. And so I feel like I didn't get to like fully enjoy myself because I felt like I had to kind of like make sure that he was having a good time. And so I decided that I was going to go back for the Saturday show. I bought two tickets for the for the next night. And I was like, I'm either going to go by myself Or I'm going to go with somebody who's going to be into this shit as much as I am. So it's the next night and I am on my way. I'm in a lift on my way to the concert and I am going alone. Now, there was like a series of events that had to occur for me to get in this one particular lift. Uh, I thought I lost my wallet at a restaurant. Um, I had another driver that canceled on me. And so I get into this car. And Hall and Oates comes on the radio. And I can see that the driver is kind of like bopping his head a little bit. I can see he's like a little bit into it. And I was like, oh, do you like Hall and Oates? And he goes, yes, I love Hall and Oates. And I said, you're taking me to a concert right now where this is all they play is like this kind of music, this genre of music. And he was like, I love this genre of music. And I said, I have an extra ticket. Do you want to come with me? And he said yes, and we went to that damn show. And, you know, I think I have a pretty good job of, like, reading people's energy. If he was, like, a total creeper, I wouldn't have asked him to come. I could tell that he had he had good vibes. So we went to the show, and we had a blast. And at the end of the night, he offered to drive me home, but I declined. Uh, I just wanted to keep keep myself safe. But then the next day, I received probably... The best text message from him, the best text I've like ever received in my life. So I'm going to read this to you now. I am just warning you that it is a little long, but it is worth it. And please note, he was he was foreign. So um, the, the grammar is perhaps not the best at times, but here it goes. Thank you, dear, for one great concert. I really had amazing time and definitely one great friend like you. If you ever need anything, just remember you have a cool friend behind your back and will support you and help you and do not expect to return favor him. And once you get to know me, you will understand why I call myself cool friend. And by the way, You do not need to use Uber or Lyft. Just let me know an hour ahead that you need a ride and I will give you rides without money. Also, the rides are not free because you already paid for them when you gave me the ticket to the concert and you took me to the concert. What you did, I consider as high class action and I respect high class people like you. Therefore, 
I am behind your back and your rides are free. Take my words as trust because you will feel that new friend is behind your back in any problem you face and time will prove it. You so do not be shy when you need any ride to work or club or restaurants. Save Uber money for fun and your head. <laughs> no, I did not take him up on on any uh, rides, free rides. But I did get the, the biggest blessing is that text message. I, I love reading that to people. OK, let's get back on track here. Today, we are diving deep with Nate Postlewaite and Boy, are you in for a real damn treat. This was yet another conversation that really, really fed my soul. And I know that you guys are going to love it. Nate is a writer. He is a survivor. He is one of us. And he has done the work and continues to do the work to heal the pain, the trauma of his past. And we're talking about all our favorite subjects, guys. All that uplifting stuff like abandonment and trauma and neglect, uh, but of course also healing. And Nate will be sharing with us about the religious and sexual childhood abuse and trauma that he endured. Obviously, trigger warning as always, although there's nothing super graphic in this conversation. He's also going to share about when his trauma really came to the surface and when he came to the realization that he was suffering from complex trauma, which was when he was 30. Now, when we experience trauma as a child, we typically compartmentalize it. We quote unquote forget about it or we don't even realize that we suffered any trauma at all, which was my experience. And therefore, you know, this unresolved trauma surfaces later in life and we may not even realize that that is what the hell is going on with us. So that's why I'm saying it is such a beautiful gift when we finally have that realization, when we realize that we're not crazy, we're not inherently flawed, we have unresolved trauma. I had something. I got triggered um, recently. I had a bit of a trauma response. But the beautiful thing is that when these emotions surfaced for me, I was able to realize in the moment that what I thought I was upset about had nothing to do with the actual situation. And I was talking about it with my therapist and she goes, this is your unresolved business. And I said to her, <laughs> I'm done resolving business, lady. Can we please shut this business <laughs> the fuck down? We can't, but we get to learn tools so that we can handle it. And the moments, they don't last forever. And the intensity and just being completely um, debilitated, the way that I used to when I was triggered, that's not my experience today. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but I'm able to, um, I'm able to use the tools that I've learned and sit with it and feel my emotions um, instead of just trying to distract myself, that's, you know, what I used to do before is like, as soon as I started to feel these uncomfortable emotions, I would try to do whatever I could to not feel those emotions. And now what I do when I feel triggered is I sit and I close my eyes and I breathe into it. And I really try to recognize what is going on in my body. And I try to recognize what is the fear or the limiting belief that is being triggered within me. So that's enough out of me for today. Uh, but before Nate, as always, join the damn Patreon. I guess I said last week that everyone needs to damn the join Patreon. So I'm going to be saying that going forward. So you need to damn the join Patreon. That is where I host uh, weekly virtual peer support groups. I do two a week. I do one on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern and on Sundays at 3.30 Eastern, uh, I am going to be adding at least one additional meeting uh, during the week starting in March. So I will start doing three a week. Um, this is a really awesome place where you get to connect with cool people like me and other adult child listeners and get support. And remember, we can't do this shit on our own. We cannot heal on our own. So stop trying to and just damn the join Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash adult child. And as always, give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. I guess I could say, give me a, how would I say this? 
damn me a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify, okay? Damn me a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify and damn the join Patreon, y'all. Bye. There's no sense in pretending You're asking me anyway Something inside you Is feeling like I do We've said all there is to say To introduce Nate Postlewaite. He is, God, what do I want to say about you? <laughs> you have quite a lot. You're a writer, you're a survivor, you are, I, I don't know if you deem yourself an adult child, but I'm telling you that you are an adult child. So welcome to the club and <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I was born in Birmingham. Oh, you were? Yeah. Okay. So that's like one hour north of my hometown. Yeah. And then I started to develop a Southern accent at two and my parents were like, we need to get her the fuck out of here. So then we moved to Philly. <laughs> that's, that's definitely out of there. What, um, where in Alabama are you from? It's a small town called Watumka. It's outside of Montgomery. So before we kind of talk about your, your upbringing, what would you say, talk about your, your bottom, like your complex PTSD bottom what what did that look like yeah that was uh scary as hell it was um i was at the peak of my career i was all over you 30 30 31 so like 12 13 years ago you look good thank you 2009 i think (laughs) um it was i'm sure you've heard other people talk about it. it was like that moment where you recognize you you can't name it, but your body goes in one direction and your mind goes in the other. And you're like, these two things are operating with their own agenda and I I can't function with them. And so I just kind of gave up. I hid uh, in my home and I quit my job. And um, what were you doing? I was the vice president of a real estate company and part owner and just went to my partners and said, Hey, I can't do this. Uh, I can't do this anymore. I need, I need time off. Did they know that you were struggling? I don't know that I knew I was struggling. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I related the best way that I know how I think that I blamed myself for everything. Cause I was in such shitty therapy that I walked away from that thinking, uh, I, I should be healthier. I'm not praying hard enough. I'm not memorizing Bible verses. I'm inherently like, flawed. Yeah. Like there's just something wrong with me that I feel this way and I don't understand, but it's clearly my fault. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's me that's not functioning well in this world. And so I went to them and just said, I've got to take some time off. And that went on for about 10 months, like the hiding of just, I can't, I can't function. And what did life to, look like on a day-to-day basis? Oh God, I slept two hours a night. I would wake up having nightmares. I was consumed with every hour. I would save enough television on my DVR where I could watch for like several hours at a time and try not to think about anything else. What were you watching? Um, shit, like anything that was like a distraction, reality TV. Like, like Housewives? Any- I'm a housewife whore. Housewives. <laughs> I mean, just like anything that says, at least you're not as bad as them. No. Yes, <laughs> yes like, exactly. But, but more of like the distraction, like what can you put in a slot of time where you don't have to think about anything? Mm-hmm. Um, I only went grocery shopping at one or two o'clock in the morning at a 24-hour grocery store because I didn't want to be in public. Mm. Um, like really severe CPTSD and, and, and had not been diagnosed at that time, just was walking around like a zombie. Did anybody know like what was going on with you at that time? My friends slowly started to fall away because I was just in so much pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that everybody was like, I don't know what to do or say, Mm -hmm. but I think what people don't understand about mental illness is that we would love nothing more than for the insides of us to click again and make sense and function in a way where we're not hurting. But when we say we're hurting, we really are hurting. There's, there's zero in, in that that's out of a need for attention or deception. Like it is 
so the, the, the feelings are so blank. Uh, the despair is so strong when you're in that position of just wanting so bad to make sense of what, why you can't get your, your mind and body to work together. I know. And there's such shame there. I mean, that was my experience. It was like, why I just kept finding myself in the same situations over and over, you know, like completely unable to like learn my lesson. And when I would enter a romantic relationship, I mean, I just became a fucking hot mess. And I was, I was an emotional vampire to my friends and I didn't want to be that way. But yeah, same thing for me. They, I mean, they just started slowly pulling away because it was like, I really, really sucked to be around and they didn't know what the hell to do for me. Yeah. I think there's also elements too, where our reality can trigger people that are not willing to address their own pain. And it can be kind of scary. I think my situation in particular was his pain is so severe and I'm afraid, but I also stopped responding to people. Mm -hmm. I think that it was like, I I don't have the energy to respond to you Tuesday at nine when you're doing your weekly check-in. You're afraid about what I'm going through. I'm afraid what I'm going through, but it feels like it's more work for me to respond to your weekly text. And I know that people tried to care, but the bigger thing for me is I just, I didn't have the appropriate therapy. Like everything was just this compound of such a waste. It was kind of dangerous to be in a position where I was like in diehard religious therapy and yeah, being re-traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. With no growth, no access to actual help or health that's helping evolve past that trauma. Okay. So let's backtrack. So okay. when was the first time that you entered therapy? I was 18 years old. Okay. And I've, I've heard you share some about your, your backstory, but so that, that the listeners know. So I know that you were a victim of, of sexual abuse, what starting at the age of five. Yeah. Sexual abuse started around five years old and, you know, we don't have the language around what's happening to this like precious, innocent five-year-old. And so those five-year-olds in us start to turn on themselves and say, I don't like the way that this feels. Therefore, this is a representation of who I am. Mm. and what I meant for. And we turn six with that same mindset and develop a new coping strategy and turn seven and that coping strategy grows. And, you know, we, we just don't know. There's not, there's not a lot of words and language around what it is that your mind and body is experiencing as a child. There's certainly no one, you know, checking in saying, Hey, is there something going on in your, in your home? I think that's one of the things I grew up, I was born in 77. So like in the early eighties, there were questions at school um, where I would have marks and different things like that from certain abuse, but there was never this like uh, urgency of clearly every sign is there that something's wrong and we need to investigate and be really mindful about what this means. What was some of those signs have been other than marks on your body? You know, I look at um, school pictures of myself uh, I was a, a great student as a kid, but you look at the school pictures and you can't, you can't look at those pictures and not assume I that child mean. is being abused. Yeah. Like it is, it's so haunting yes. to look at the face and just say, there's not an ounce of life in this kid's face. There's just, there's terror. I actually keep that photo on my desk mm. and uh, look at that often and just remind myself of what I've done for that, you know, for that young boy and, and what he carried and how long he carried it. So at what age did you have an understanding that what you were experiencing wasn't normal? I hate saying this, but honestly, 30, 31, that was part of the breakdown. Here's the thing is like, you know, for a lot of us that grew up in these kind of toxic environments where no one's educated around the impacts of the nervous system and the body and trauma informed and everything is about religion the ignorance really is bliss. So you skip this whole layer. And so even though I entered therapy at 18, it was all religious and there, there were no conversations that were moving me along to a place where there was actual healing and understanding about what was going on inside of my mind and body with that, when you are approaching everything as a sinner, um, someone who can repent their way out of their pain or, you know, constantly um, reassess their value. And and you're waiting on God to do this thing that is about science. Mm. You you miss all of those years. So if you asked me in my twenties, 
were you a survivor or a victim of child sexual abuse? I mean, I think in on one level, I would have said yes, but then I think I also thought either we all are or, um, <laughs> yeah, but I deserved it. Like there, there wasn't enough language. I, I mean, I really was that far gone because the environment that I grew up in to, to not even know and understand the significance of what that was and how long it went on. Like, I, I just, I did not know. I really did not know. And it went on until about what age? 15, 16, 14, 14. Yeah. So then when you entered therapy at 18, was it to, to become straight? Yeah. I mean, I, as a kid, I share the, the burden of so many young gay kids who grew up in religion. And we, we, what we hear about being gay is so dark and repulsive that we take on that identity of like, I'm not even going to pretend that this exists, you know, in, in my world. Do you remember the first time that you learned what being gay was? Yeah. I was like five or six years old. And it was, it it was explained to me as basically a pedophile and was just so ridiculous. So I had one of my other good friends, I had her on one of my earlier episodes and her dad was a pastor of a huge evangelical church in, in Indiana. And same thing that that's what, um, that's what it was described to her that it was mostly like, yeah, older men preying on young boys. Statistically, the most, the strongest demographic of uh, sexual predators and pedophiles are uh, identified heterosexual white men. Uh-huh. Um, that's just fact. <laughs> that's uh, that's evidence that's in reports. And I think that the the conversation around sexuality and sexual abuse that th- those two things do not go together it's mm-hmm. it's wildly wildly inappropriate but i mean I, I i knew i knew as a kid like something is different about me but then when, when i heard what gay was i was just like well i don't want to be that um yeah, definitely you, not <laughs> yeah like you you, <laughs> no, you spend your life the way that you can to not become this thing that pegs you as this you know horrific monster entered the Christian therapy at 18, just disaster. I mean, just a disaster. So how did that happen though? Like, were you, did you go come forward and say, I'm, I like men and I can't do anything about it. Or how did that come about? No, I didn't say I couldn't do anything about it. I, I, I learned the language. I struggle with same sex attraction. That language was out there at the time. This is what the late nineties in the nineties. Yeah. In Alabama. 90s. Yeah. And so it's like a, a SWAT team of Christians like gathered around of like, well, this is just the worst case in the world. And I think the thing that's so offensive is you had this 18 year old who is saying, this is the way that I feel. And they're identifying that as, oh, it's because you were abused by all these different people for all these sexual abuse experiences from five to 14. And I believe. So you told them that. Yeah. 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 I told us, I shared about the abuse. Um, And I believed that, you know, when I was told that that's why you are, are, that's why you're struggling with your sexuality. I believed that. Mm -hmm. And um, I committed to what I knew. I committed to this idea that, okay, if, this is why then we, you know, we have to fix this. So the irony is we were addressing my sexuality for all these years and never addressing the trauma, Mm. never talking about like the impacts of childhood trauma. It was just so, um, it was so ironic. That's why like when, when people are talking about banning conversion therapy, that's why people like me are so happy because it's so ignorant. If you knew the history of conversion therapy, the people who invented conversion therapy and the, the What's the backstory? Uh, as corrupt as you can imagine, like the two <laughs> founders of Exodus, after starting this like ex gay ministry, ended up being partners oh, I'm together. Sure. Like I'm they sure. left their ministry and like so many scandals around being arrested and sexual assault and drugs and just a ton of deception in that, in the whole world. They, most of the leaders eventually end up coming out. Yeah. Um, sure. as being, as being gay <laughs> themselves, but 
I think it's um, an automatic assumption. <laughs> yeah. But you know, what's crazy is like these people don't have, they're not educated at all. Like they don't have, they're, they, they're made the head of these ministries just because they're married to women. Like that's their criteria. Like, and they have really strong pleats in their pants. Like that's, that's the extent of that's our criteria here. You get to lead this ministry about how people become ex gay. So, but they're probably back, victims of their own trauma, right? Um, I think to some degree, but I think when you start perpetuating harm to other people, it puts you in a different category. There's a hell of a lot of people who are traumatized that never repeat that pattern with or without help. And I just look at people like that. And I think long before the ex-gay movement, they were still involved in some sort of predatory behavior before Mm -hmm. and after that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of view it as, I don't see it so much as, well, they were also traumatized. I view it more as predatory people are predatory people. Like the desire to have control over another human, that's an issue that has also has nothing to do with, with sexuality. There's been two big movements around um, uh, conversion therapy, the Netflix documentary, which I thought was just kind of a failure. I mean, they focused on all of the leaders and their stories and it's just like, y'all there's, I don't remember, but it's like there's 700,000 people you could interview who were impacted by conversion therapy. And it's not the people who led it. Like, that's just, that's not the way to go. And then what was the other one? Uh, Boy Erased, the movie Boy Erased. So when you say that they're talking about the sexual abuse, you're addressing the sexual abuse, but that, but without addressing the trauma, what does that look like? No, we never address sexual abuse. We address, address sexuality. Sexuality. Period. Okay. So that what, I mean, what is it? And when you're having these, like when you're in therapy, what does that look like? Is it always like a group of people or like what, what was that experience like? Um, both. I did group therapy. I did conventions. I did one-on-one therapy. Um, there's a lot of different approaches. A lot of it was um, really baffling because there was this idea of depending on the whatever sex you identify as your same sex parent and the wound that you have from them is the reason that you struggle so severely with your you know with your sexuality so there's a lot of pressure to go back Mm. and like have this relationship with my father that kind of never existed to begin with and i was hanging in the balance of Mm. gosh if i could just get my dad to see me and appreciate Mm. me and have this relationship with me. Well, my dad was not someone that I should have ever had a relationship with. Like it it just, he just wasn't, he wasn't a safe person for me. He was quite abusive since I was a very young child. And that doesn't make sense of of this idea that says (laughs) through the lens of this religion, your restoration is going to be with your father because that's where your, your wounds are. I think to sum that up, it's just, it's cult behavior. It's wildly, wildly ignorant. Um, and still goes on today. Do not be deceived that therapy conversion therapy is very much active, um, in different names in different cultures and different churches. They continue to kind of repackage it and just say, well, we don't force this on anybody. Um, we're just saying, Voluntary. This, yeah, this is God's best. So what about the other people that were also in the therapy with you? Were they, were there a lot of like restrictions around, like you guys can't be friends and stuff like that? Like when you're in the groups? Um, well, you know, the funny thing is, is like my first kind of semi relationship was at one of those conferences. Of course. And um, <laughs> I, I joke a lot where I was, they, but this is the weird thing is they had us sleeping in the same beds. Really? Yeah. And, <laughs> Isn't that strange? Like they had us trying to keep that flow of money, you know, they don't don't want you to keep you better. (laughs) Let's pack all of these same sex attracted men in the bed. And so when I got there and I saw the sleeping (laughs) arrangements and I got to know this other guy, he was like, yeah, I have my own bed. And I was like, oh, I should come to your room then. And so like we were hooking up at the, at the conference. Um, Amazing conference. Uh, Really, really, really impactful. (laughs) I go back every year. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that those conferences also really, uh, I don't know if melodramatic is the word, but so, so offensive to these people who are trying to understand their sexuality. And it all came down to either you were abused or your relationship with your parent needs to be repaired. It was that simple to them. 
how stupid, how ignorant, you know, that, that movement I got out of like around my mid twenties, where I was just like, I, I can't stand these people. Like the people in my groups, I could not stand being in the groups with the, the way that they talked into different things. And I think too, I was very sexually active as a closeted person. So a closeted I, person in conversion therapy, having sex with other yeah, people like, that are also in conversion therapy. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I always, I always had a lot of conflict where I would go to these groups and there were, we would do these check-ins and have to share. And I was just like, well, I accidentally had sex 13 more times this week. <laughs> and I really bad. And, um, and the shame was happened. real. Yeah. The shame was real. But it was like, I think that I always felt like they looked at me like I was this, you know, pervert or whatever. And it was just like, I mean, I feel terrible, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do when, I mean, this is the way that I feel. It keeps happening times in one day. (laughs) I don't know why that AOL chat room. Oh God, AOL. What was your first screen name? (laughs) Oh God. uh, I'm trying to think. I have no idea. In conversion therapy, but still Fox. It, it would, yeah, it would have been. It would have been something that was super discreet that would have never let you know, like uh, church boy, who I was. <laughs> oh Lord, mine was Peach Seven Girl <laughs> for no reason. Peach, <laughs> Peach seven? seven Girl. I was like young. Yeah, Peach was my favorite fruit. Seven was my favorite number, and I was a girl. Peach Seven Girl. What rooms did you go in? I don't know, but I just remember, like, I remember being very young and like having like, <laughs> like having, what, what do you even call it? Like chat sex. <laughs> and I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. You know, <laughs> How old were you? I was like really young. I was like nine or 10 or something. Oh shit. Uh, I remember thinking that like a blow job was like literally like, whew, like, blow, like blowing <laughs> hair on a guy's penis. <laughs> oh, that's awful. That poor kid. Whatever. I turned out. Okay. Beat seven lives on. Beat seven girl. <laughs> what was your favorite fruit growing up? <laughs> you could have been what? Strawberry 14 boy. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. Um, I so wish then, I could remember. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, what? No, you wish you could remember those things. Yeah. Do you, do you, are you one of those people that you don't have a lot of memories? I have such vivid, very, very aware memories. I've been a writer since I was like 15. So I have like boxes and boxes of journals. It's the only place I had where I was honest. Mm -hmm. So I think that that helped restore a lot, but I've also done such extensive like EMDR work since I was around 30 um, that my memories are just very vivid, very clear. I did have, I certainly had categories of things that I had, I, I think if you had laid out and said, did this specific thing happen? I would have been able to say, say yes, but I didn't know how to name it. And so a lot of that was part of the, the breakdown too, which is realizing like, God, I've been in therapy for 13 years and I'm just now understanding how significant a lot of this abuse was. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to circle back to the EMGR thing, but first, so then you stopped doing that at, at 25 So then what happened between 25 to 30 when you hit that bottom? I worked nonstop. Um, Work was always really important to me. It was a, it was a really nice escape from not having to explain why I was alone, why I wasn't dating, why I wasn't in relationships. And so I focused on that. Like I made that like my bedrock of as long as I can, be uber successful. No one's going to question why in the hell have I never seen you on a date? Those years, I got to tell you, they were so lonely. There was a long period of celibacy in that where from 25 to 30, where I really looked and just thought, you know, the sexual acting out feels empty. I'm waiting on God to do this thing in me where I no longer have a desire to be with a man. I had no idea of like, Hey, a big part of your issue, the stuff that you're feeling is not about that. It's about stuff that you've been exposed to for so long. That's lived inside of your body. So 25 to 30 was just, it was really lonely. It was really lonely. I think that that was when um, I started retreating other than work. I started to just kind of pull away and uh, isolate quite a bit. Cause I just, I, I saw 
time passing by around me and my friends were getting married and having kids and their house. And then the second kid. And I just was like, I don't know what to do, but I'm not feeling an ounce of, I was so naive around conversion therapy that I believed it was real. I believed that it Mm -hmm. absolutely was going to happen. Mm. Um, I didn't even question it until my thirties at all. Um, but yeah, so lonely. What did your prayer sound like? Desperate. Um, I'll do anything, Mm. anything. What am I missing? What, you know, what is it that, um, I'm not seeing or that I need to do differently. Mm -hmm. Um, I was gutting myself constantly. There was a lot of talk outside of my own journey of the sexuality piece, but the way masculinity and um, femininity in the churches, it's pretty distorted as well. So I was reading a lot of books about what it means to be a man. And um, I just cleared out my shelf several months ago. And I have a special stack. I donated a ton of books, but I have a special stack of about five books that I want to burn myself. And one of those is one of the books about godly masculinity and just how ironic (laughs) and goofy all of that bullshit was. (laughs) So then how, so then how did you pull yourself out of that hellhole or that darkness of 10 months of being in your house? Where were you living at the time? Tennessee in Nashville, um, full credit to the, I went to an outpatient center and, um, I, I took a brochure to my therapist and said, I found this place. And he said, well, let me do some research. And I was like, you do whatever research you want. I'm going because these people sound like me and I can't keep going at the pace that I'm going. Like, so I, were you going- doing therapy during those 10 months? The whole time. Oh, and, and was that also conversion therapy? Well, he was, he was religious. Religious. Uh Yeah. I've talked about this a lot on podcasts. I think that, you know, I spent years going to a therapist who was like the, the liberal guy within the Christian community. And um, he made, made it very clear his stance on homosexuality and has old ideas that he used to tell me things like when you feel comfortable enough with a woman, you're going to tell her, what you're most afraid of and what's happened to you. And you guys are going to have an intimate connection. And that is going to be you know, uh-huh where you begin moment. to feel. Yeah. And so I would pursue those things and feel claustrophobic and icky and just like awful. And then I would go home and feel like a horrible person mm-hmm. or feeling like you're so pathetic. You can't even connect with a woman as a, a straight man. You're so disgusting. You're so repulsive. And so I was going to him for years Um, and my biggest issue with him outside of how wildly ignorant he was, was that 10 months, I I very, very easily could have lost my life. Yeah. And, you know, you've got this vulnerable person, clearly complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, like could have had a tattoo on my head that said (laughs) massive mental pain right now. And to go and trust someone and they're giving you Bible verses and quotes from Christian books and prayer. When you, when you're, you're, you're contemplating your life and you start to believe that process of, I think I would be better off if I did end it. Like there was this fascination with that. That's the part that makes me the most angry is man had something happened to me during that time. You would have spiritualized that and talked about me being in a better place. And I swear if that was true, I would come back and haunt the fuck out of you because you had this innocent person begging for help and your own ignorance could have done severe, you know, pretty severe damage. I talk a lot about bad therapy on my platforms and um, I just think there should be a different level of accountability around what being trauma-informed means. I know. I mean, it's, it's truly the case. I mean, I wasn't seen like religious therapists, but I think that the experience that I had and that, you know, and a lot of the adult children that reach out to me is like, we spent years in therapy and therapists never told us what the fuck was wrong with us. I don't think that enough therapists out there are informed on specifically on, on complex trauma, you know? Yeah. Agreed. 
Um, Agreed. There's a beautiful uprising of those that are learning the different modalities and getting training and they take it so serious. And I think genuinely want to facilitate a beautiful environment and an experience for someone who's traumatized to feel trauma resolve inside of their mind, inside of their body. Mm -hmm. The ones that feel any sense of domain over another person, they're problematic period. The ones who feel like their way is the way for everybody, problematic bullshit. That is not what trauma informed is. And that conversation has got to expand more and more so that people start to understand when, when you go and you're seeking help and you go and you ask someone for help, you are the one in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. You are paying a payment to do that. You being willing to be vulnerable and, and speak of all of these things, you should leave that space feeling so respected and so cared for because of your bravery in revisiting this old thing. Any other experience, run, mm-hmm. run. That's the bare minimum in mm-hmm. trauma therapy. So then what was this outpatient that you started to go to? God, remarkable. The, the therapist handed me her card. She had 16,000 credentials that I had never even heard of before. And um, the way she worked in that group was remarkable. It was really, really powerful. It was a trauma group? Yeah, it was a trauma group. And we did some, some one-on-one. I was there for, I think, two weeks total. Um, but you have to, you, there were, I don't remember the name of the type of therapy. I think it starts with the P, but you watch other people. Psychodrama. Yeah. You, but you watch them play a character from your family and that, that happens in front of you. And, um, my God, the breakthrough I had there that, that burst the bubble of the intensity from the CPTSD, uh, Mm -hmm. for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then. I got back into my life and within, I'm going to say days because I got back into, I left in October. I got back in November. I remember walking in my home. Where did you go to do that? Uh, it was in Tennessee. Okay. There's two. I think one is in Minnesota and one's in Tennessee. And the one that I went to was in Tennessee. Uh, luckily, luckily for me. Um, but I remember walking back in my home and just kind of looking around thinking, I don't like this life that I've built. Mm. I don't even know who I am, but I know that I don't like this, the way that this feels, the way that this works. I don't like it. So I started my exit strategy. Then I think primarily to get away from the South, away from what I had been exposed to and just Mm -hmm. see what else is, is out there. What else Mm -hmm. is in the world that I can possibly pursue to see if I can make sense of what I've experienced. And so you, where'd you go out to California? Yeah, I went to California. I got a great consulting gig in real estate and that gave me a lot of freedom for the first time I bought my first business when I was 19. So I had just been a workaholic for 12, 13 years. And um, it gave me permission to go work normal hours and then step away and start to have a life that I didn't learn what my hobbies were until I was like 30, 31 years old. I had no idea what my hobbies were. And um, that's when I started learning what my hobbies were and really got to know myself. And um, once I got settled in California, the PTSD was really in full effect where I was just like, it wasn't, it wasn't the same angst of like, oh my God, it was more of just like this steady flow of anxiety every day, mm-hmm. panic. It was nowhere near as bad as what it was, but that's when I started EMDR as well, because someone explained like, that, and that's when I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about that. So I, I've done some EMDR, but it was before I really knew it was between Brian number one and Brian number two. <laughs> I didn't like fully know what my deal was. Um, but it's interesting when you do the research on um, using it specifically for childhood trauma, as opposed to, um, you know, more big T trauma in adulthood. And it seems like, you know, there has to be a lot more preparatory work and obviously doing it with somebody who like really knows what the fuck they're doing. So what was your experience with it? Were you specifically targeting? Yeah, 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 but I just, I really want to amplify what you just said because you just hit the nail on the head. 
You have to do prep work and you have to be with someone who knows what they're doing. You feel safe with. So um, mine was, so here's the thing. Like I approached it with this mad rush of um, I'm kind of a mess. Hurry, help me. Yeah, it was kind of like what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't like, huh, I wonder if I've got CPTSD and if my anxiety can be resolved by someone moving my eyes back and forth. It was just yeah. like, hurry. Like yeah. hurry, give me like I need this fix yesterday. If, if at most in a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, what you said is what every single person needs to hear about MDR, but um, my experience was really good. I had one bad experience where we didn't close out well, and I had a lot of anxiety after having opened up this thing and it just was not, it was not closed out well. But one of the things that I want your listeners to hear is that if EMDR does not work for you, that is okay. Mm -hmm. It is not the end all. There are so many other modalities like brain spotting and somatic experiencing and trauma-informed yoga and an amazing conversation with a safe friend on a park bench. Like there are so many things that help regulate our nervous system and make us safe inside of our body when we're talking about old memories. Um, EMDR for me was, it was life-changing. I did I did intensives, but are like eight, eight to 10 hours a day, two to three days in a row. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus for sure. Cause like I needed so much rest on those nights, <laughs> but um, the thing was, is I was taking time off of work. I wasn't self-employed. And so when I would take that time off, I was like, I want to just go, you know, all in and do like chunks of this at a time. And uh, therapist was great. We would do a lot of groundwork around the childhood stuff, but yeah, it was, I mean, Andrea, like the first, let's see, I started in 2011 and ended with that therapist in 2016 and did, I think, nine intensives in that time. Um, It it was the the urgency of please make me make sense. And that's when we started digging at the childhood stuff and had some really beautiful moments with that, with that EMDR therapist. Really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, when I found my therapist. I mean, I saw her twice a week for like the first year and a half, but yeah, I mean, so we get to that point where I was willing to do anything, you know, I was willing to do anything when I finally had my big aha that like, I had to treat this as seriously as I had treated my alcoholism. So did you ever have any substance abuse issues? No, I would say that my sexual behavior was pretty sporadic and there's a lot of terminology on like sex addiction, which I've learned recently is not a thing at all, but that I was pegged as a sex addict um, for a long time and kind of carried that scarlet letter on my back. Um, at, later on, alcohol certainly played a role where um, just last year I stopped drinking because I have a tendency to just go too far. Um, also struggled with um, bin, binge eating disorder terribly. Mm-hmm. That was really that kind of developed, I would say in that 25 to 30 year period. Um, and didn't even know that that, that was what like you were doing. a thing. Yeah. I didn't know. I, I didn't know that that was, you know, that, that abnormal or, or weird. So, I mean, as you know, like we have all of these coping patterns that are, are really, you know, really difficult to, to name, but, um, I, I would have told anybody about my eating habits around that time and just not know like, Hey, that's really un- unhealthy and not good for you. <laughs> I just by accident ate 13 pizzas since I lost right. video. <laughs> right. Uh, so what was like one of your biggest um aha moments where you saw your growth or your healing, I mean? I think coming out for me was oh god, just the most glorious, private, sacred, don't you ever fucking come near me again moment where in that moment, me coming out made me unapproachable to every piece of shit abuser in my world where they no longer had access to me. And when was that? 2016. Wow. It's, um, it's funny because there's so many coming out stories that I don't relate to mine is more about identifying what was true and right for my well-being and no longer living my life based on really fucked up terms that someone else laid out for me. Um, 
I would say that. And I'm working on my story now, but man, when I just think about like I, the night before I came out, I remember sitting on my couch and just thinking, I might get emotional when I say this. I hope you do. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, this is going to cost you so many relationships, but could be the thing hmm. that finally gives you some breathing room to feel like you're equal. Hmm. And I sat there that night and I was just like, yeah, I have to, I have to. And I texted my best friend the next day and somehow on my text, he just knew like, he, he knew how to respond. I, I said, I need to talk with you today. And he said, I am in Broomfield. I will be to your home at, and he gave me the exact time. It was, it was just, and um, we sat at my dining room table and I said, I can't do this whole thing anymore where um, I'm, I'm trying to attain this idea that there's something wrong with me and I, I, I have to put some sort of effort in this life that's for me, that makes mm-hmm. sense. I, I cannot take another step. And he said, I have never in my life met someone who has worked so hard to be happy. Mm-hmm. And if this brings you joy, I am all in. I'm all for it. And I told him first because he was heavily tied into a lot of the relationships that he knew I would lose. Um, and I did. And um, it did not hurt the way that I thought. It did not hurt the way that, that I thought. Something happened that day for me where I'm telling you, it is like the holes that existed where abusive people could hook into me were filled. Mm. And my voice was so strong and so clear. I had one friend who on a rooftop asked me if I was willing. He said, are you willing to hear my feedback about your lifestyle? And I said, are you willing to hear my feedback about your marriage? And he said, no. And I said, exactly. Like my my lifestyle is, is none of your business. And being gay is not a lifestyle, by the way. If it is, I'm failing miserably at it because I live a really quiet life. Um, but yeah, I would say that's probably where I'm the mm. proudest. I, you know, I hear a lot of people say no regrets. Um, everything made me the way that I am, blah, blah, blah. I don't believe any of that. Like I, I deeply regret that I was born in, into a family that lived in the deep South. I, as a gay kid, I deeply regret that I spent my twenties in conversion therapy and not dating and traveling. I deeply regret that I had to go to therapy and undo all these, you know, other years. And I'm going to continue to regret and grieve that so that I can be present today and not make up this other narrative that somehow is supposed to buffer that pain. Cause it's, it's real pain. It's real loss. But are you able to see the blessing from it at all? Like, do you see any positive from it? I don't feel any need to see anything positive from that. I I view it as trauma and I view it as unnecessary. And I look at it and I think until we can start having conversations that say that was not supposed to happen, it's leaving people in a position who still can't name what they need to feel like I'm supposed to be looking for the positive. No, you're not. You're supposed to be healing and learning your way out. So I just, for me, no. I, I, I don't, I, I look at the twenties. I think when people say things like, um, yeah, but don't you see this or this? It's just like, no, I see a price that was paid and I see a 20 something year old me that I will cry for and I will ache for, and I will validate the shit out of what he knew and understood. And I will be sad that I can never get those twenties back under any circumstances that is what makes me enjoy today so much more. It makes me feel very valid in looking at my life and thinking I've got to do something today that is honoring being alive and, and, and being here. What about from the perspective of, of, you know, being able to help others through sharing your story? 
I just don't know that that's a necessary narrative. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people, am I able to help a lot of people? Yes. Did I have to hurt like this to be able to do that? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. Um, I, I think that, um, I think I'm grateful for what I've done with my life, but I also think that um, there were so many brink of death moments, mm-hmm. be it uh, being suicidal or my mental health was just so bad for so many years that I just don't know that that narrative is is necessary. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful. I'm I'm I feel very much respected in my space for the way that I share. I know that, that the way that I share is um, not comfortable for a lot of people, but damn those who like me can't handle a lot of the toxic positivity. Holy shit. We find each other. And it's just Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. yeah, I know, I know that pain. I know that layer of depth that you're talking about and that how, how isolating and alone it feels there. Yeah. I think for me that that is one of the the blessings and the beauty that I have from my pain is just the relationships that I've been able to form with people and just being able to connect on such a soul level that for me, I'm not sure that I would have ever had, had that not happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what does healing look like for you today? Man, I don't, I don't go a day without doing some sort of breath work. Um, I am in the mountains or outdoor as often as possible. That is my world. That is what I live for. Um, I had no idea that reading, I didn't (laughs) read my first book until like my early thirties as an adult. What was it? uh, The first book was the tender bar. God like masculinity. (laughs) No, it was the tender bar. I mean, I I Uh read off and on in my twenties, but like since then I read like 30 to 40 books a year. Um, I love, love reading. Um, also I did not know how introverted I was. Mm. I have always had an extrovert lifestyle where I was in real estate for 13 years, either as a part owner or a, a broker, an agent. And I always thought that I was isolating at times. And it was just like, I don't think you were isolating. I think you were resting. Mm-hmm. because you really do enjoy, but, but here's the thing, like the pain for an introvert who has a lot of trauma is we want to be alone, but being alone is torturous because mm-hmm. we got all this shit that's going on inside of us that we can't map out and figure out. So the beauty is healing for me now is like, God, when I go on my hikes and watch the sunrise here in Colorado um, by myself, <laughs> Um, it's getting lost in a book and my mind having the capacity mm-hmm. to read it, start to finish without getting lost and not, not remembering, you know, what I'm reading. It's, um, being present. Yeah. The, the, the time that I spend, uh, breathing into the younger parts of me, that part I think is, so, so, so meaningful to me where when this whole journey started, I would look at that. I couldn't see pictures of myself as a child. It was too painful. And now um, it's integrated. It's whole. It's just, uh, there's just a respect there for this beautiful young kid who had shit tons of trauma done to him. Mm-hmm. Do you watch any TV? Um, I don't watch a lot of TV. I, I've become that brainchild that like <laughs> TikTok. Mm-hmm. Like if I, if I want to get lost, I'll, I'll get on TikTok and I'll start at like Tuesday at 6 PM. And then it's Saturday <laughs> afternoon. And I'm like, Holy shit. I just watched TikTok for four days. Um, <laughs> but like I can easily get into like a documentary around trauma. I'm real weird like that, where a lot of people are like, Oh, I can't watch it. Fascinated about like, I just watched the Tinder swindler um, devoured stuff like that. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned the Real Housewives. Hey, did you read either of the books that came out about them last year? Mm-hmm. So I read the one, and after reading that, I just have lost interest. Where it's just oh, like fucking, I'm obsessed. You, I, did I, you watch Salt Lake last season? I I couldn't. It just it, it, something has happened where that level 
of drama. The the narcissistic personalities for me, I'm just like I fucking love it. I'm like, I, give I it to me. Here something something has happened. Like there's been this switch. I've watched that for years. You're healthier than me, I guess. <laughs> no, I just I think that there's just been some switch where it's just too it's too vulnerable. It's too raw. Where I'm like, I just don't want to watch this. Well, now there's all this crime going on. It's fabulous. Yeah. Like Erica Jane. Oh my yeah, I'm like a I'm like a nut. I mean, I I watch them all. I listen to like five million podcasts. I am a I I saw I went to Luann's cabaret show. Did you really? Yeah, it was like the best night of my life. <laughs> was she good on stage? Yeah. So this was like when she had first. Okay. So you were probably still watching then. This was like right when she started the cabaret show. So it was like the season where she got the DUI. Remember? Yeah. yeah. And so then she does that. So, so she, this was her first show out of New York. She did sh two shows in LA. And so I go and we're, this is the time when we think that she's sober, but then it like comes out a few months later that she's been like sneak drinking, you know? And so I'm at the show and like, somehow I get like right next to the stage and I don't she, like, so she has like, you know, other acts that come out, you know, and like talk and stuff. And somehow she's like sitting, like she's sitting right next to me. Like she's on the show and somehow she looks at me and I'm like, and it's so embarrassing for me to like say this now, but I'm like, I'm sober too. And then she like looked at me and she was like, thumbs up. And so she's making all these like jokes throughout the whole thing about like being sober. And at one point she like makes a comment and then she like turns to me and she's like, am I right? Like nobody like else knew like what was going on. She like turned to death that and then i got my picture taken with her at the end and i was like being sober is the best thing ever like you oh, can do right. it and she's like yeah and then i found out like a week later that she'd been like <laughs> secretly drinking for months <laughs> i had her cabaret director on my podcast oh my god oh his name my was god. ben rimmelauer he like hid his alan on bottom like from doing her show <laughs> did you did you watch the last season yeah it was horrible it like i I, I was barely hanging on. It was, it was so bizarre. Well, talk about alcoholism. It is so fucking reckless. Like Sonia has a serious, serious problem, you know? So yeah, it's good. But I just feel like now with all this crime stuff, like I'm only like going to be, they've set the bar so high that like I'm only going to be into it if like somebody is like getting ready to get sent to prison. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I love all that stuff. And I love like 90 Day Fiance and I watch like Love After Lockup. <laughs> uh, I like it. It's my shit. So um, so what do you have going on? What do you want to shell? What do I want to shell? Yeah, or shill. What do you? What do you? How do you say that? Push, oh. sell. What are the oh. shill? Isn't that? Is that a word? I don't have. I don't. Oh, my course. I said do a course. I do a four week course on um, inner child work called Healing the Younger You, and it is where um, everybody on that Sunday they get uh, a video of me talking. The videos are fifteen to twenty minutes. One of them is thirty. Try to keep it as short as possible with slides that go with it and a worksheet. But the really beautiful part is twice a week we get together and we do a live Q&A and um, it's pretty massive. There's people that call in from all over the world and you have these people just sharing their stories about overcoming childhood trauma. And then you have this, all of these people in the chat box who leave them messages after they share. And I coach each of them individually and we talk through that. Um, I started this course in August of last year and I've had 1200 people go through it, which Jesus. is just insane. Yeah. And um, it's just, it's, it's created this beautiful, really beautiful community. Um, but that's really the main thing I've got. That going is on. so cool. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. That's a shitload you know, of people. It is. We, the, the, one of the things that I did, like I am terrible with technology. So I have this marketing company in Washington who takes care of all the marketing and stuff. And, they priced it at 450. And I said, listen, that is so not accessible to people. And so we went back and forth. And I came up with something that I love. The course is $98. And other people who can't afford 98 sponsor someone else for 98. So it includes people who typically would not have access to it. And it makes the people who are sponsoring aware that it's great to be able to afford a course and if you get a lot out of it, wonderful. But also here's the reality of a lot of people around disability, single parents, COVID losing their job, whatever it is, it makes them that aware. And then it makes the person who asked for the sponsorship aware 
Some stranger who's a fellow survivor gives a shit about your well-being. Mm. So we get to watch all of these emails go back and forth because when you sponsor someone, uh, the person that you sponsor gets an email with your email address, unless you check anonymous. And then those people send an email and they're like, I, I don't know what to say, mm. but thank you so much for sponsoring me. So we made it $98 to make it as accessible as possible. So I run that two to three times a year in between. I do um, private coaching. I feel very fortunate that I don't push the coaching because it's bo- I'm booked. Like there's no space. There's no wait list. Like it's, it's, it's booked for, for a year. Um, so the course is the main thing, like the, the, the best way to connect and, um, get involved with just like a, a survivor community. We have a, a zip code search where you can find the person closest to you. If they've signed up, who's also taken the course and, um, we're adding bios to that. So it's helping people connect with other survivors. That's beautiful. Well, I, I obviously am so sorry for what you went through, but I am so fucking glad that we got to meet. So Thank you. <laughs> this has been such a beautiful conversation. I will include all of your shit in the show notes. So thank Perfect. you so much for chatting with me. Perfect. Thank you for having me. Break down and take me through the night. Break down. I'm standing. Can't you see? wraps up today's episode. As always, you're welcome. I know you heard something that can help you on your own healing journey. Thanks again to Nate. That was beautiful. Uh, Check out the show notes for links to his stuff. I think that that inner child workshop seems really amazing and I'm thinking about signing up for it. Um, What else? You can find links to my social media. I am at Pod on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, please send me DMs. Please email me at Andrea at adultchildpodcast.com. Um, and I am going to see all y'all next week for another fabulous fucking episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise.